Welcome back to another episode of the Mentor Me Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Hall, and I recently had the chance to sit down with Dr. John Deloney, aka Dr. D, who is a leading voice on relationships and emotional well-being. Dr. Deloney is also a Ramsey personality for Dave Ramsey's team. On this episode, John talked about what anxiety is and some ways to recognize and combat it. Dr. John also hits on a few keys he has learned to real friendships. And to finish off the episode, we talk about technology, the good and the harm of it, and the importance of setting it down once in a while. I hope you enjoy. Oh, man. So I was born, my dad is... Well, let me back that up here. My dad, I was born, obviously, clearly it happened. Um, my dad was a homicide detective and he was a SWAT team hostage negotiator in Houston. So he was a bad dude. And my mom was a stay-at-home mom who was encouraged by the culture she grew up in to not um, go to any schooling, any education beyond high school. My dad was always, you know, encouraging her to go to college, but she wasn't allowed. That wasn't a thing that they did. So, um, that's that's the universe I, I grew up in. And then at age 42, I think I was in high school. My mom was 42. She took one community college class. And at the, around that time, my dad transitioned out of being a hostage negotiator and a, and a homicide detective to becoming a youth pastor at a giant church there in Houston and working with teens and um, preteens. And so my mom started going to class and she went to another class and another class and another class. And as you can imagine, you've got these power structures in my home, which is you've got a guy that the whole city of Houston looks to when things are going down and a stay at home homemaker mom who then suddenly goes to college and starts reading things and finding her voice halfway through their marriage. Right. At the same time, my dad transitions to become a, um, a youth minister, which really meant he took care of people's mental health and their life issues, right? So I just grew up with the ringside seat. My mom kept going to college, kept going to college, and now she got her PhD, I think, at 57, was a tenured professor at 63, and now she's a 70-year-old department chair. She's just a gangster. <laughs> but all that to say, I watched two people be in the messy lives of everybody, from people they knew, people they didn't know, and then I also watched them have their own journey underneath this. And one thing they constantly preached was follow your nose and do the next fun, cool, adventurous thing. But when you do it, do it super, super good. Be excellent mm -hmm. in the work that you're doing. And so I got my PhD in 2010 in higher education. I was a, a senior administrator at a college and I was noticing between that decade and, and 2020, my students were coming to me with mental health issues that were over my head. I didn't have the wisdom and understanding. I didn't have the knowledge. And then their parents and families were falling down around them too. Hmm. Their brothers and sisters were falling apart. Their moms and dads were falling apart. So I started nickel and diming myself back to school. And then I fell apart. I was spun out and got so anxious that I didn't know what day it was and what, I mean, it was just nutty. And so my marriage had trouble. Then I had a kid and then we had another kid. And so all I have to say is I started nickel and diming my way through a, counseling degree um, and ultimately ended up getting a second PhD in counseling. And then I started doing some after hours work with the police department there in my community, doing death notifications with families and doing crisis intervention and things like that. And um, ultimately really followed a track that my parents had laid before me, which is when people are hurting, that's where you got to show up. And 
in the middle of the night when no one else knows these are going on, that's when the real hard work in the lives of people is done. And that's when good, strong, holy, hard things happen. And so that's, that's really how I got plugged into it. That's incredible. So as you were explaining that, I just thought of, you must hear so many heart wrenching stories. And it sounds like, you know, everybody has those tragedies at, at some point in their life, including yourself. You talked a little bit about that. Um, how do you, how do you not necessarily bring yourself to that level of, um, I guess, bring yourself to that level of empathy or maybe even sympathy to some level, if you've experienced it, how do you listen to those people and, and, and really get on their level of empathy? Um, the, the, the main hard, hard lesson I had to learn was to not enter into people's lives, whether it's positive stuff or negative stuff or heavy stuff or tragedy. Don't head into those things with advice or mm. anything other than my presence. And I made a um, maybe the most glaring mistake um, along those lines is my wife had three tough miscarriages and the third one um, almost killed her. It was a mess. Mm. It was hard. And um, I was working crisis for the city. I was a Dean of students at a law school. I was, I was getting a second PhD. I thought I was hot stuff. And so I gave her a lot of information. Here's how you should be responding. Here's the things that, you know, you should be thinking and feeling. Here's what you should be doing. And what I ended up doing in, in that was really hurting the person that I love the most in the world. And because she didn't need my information, she didn't need my um, thoughts and opinions. She needed my presence. She needed me just to show up and shut my mouth. And so that was an, a gnarly yet clarifying lesson in what empathy looks like. Empathy is just simply showing up and being with. On a rare occasion, somebody will ask, what do I do now? And even now, when I have those conversations with somebody who's in a, in a hard tragedy, the answer is, let's, let's do that tomorrow. Right now, mm. we're just going to sit here, right? And you just heal people with your presence. And that's um, not showing up to those moments on what can I bring to this? Look how lucky they are to have me and my wisdom there. But more importantly, I'm going to show up because it's the right thing to do. Yeah. And that's the hard thing to do too, you know, to not spew your opinion or your life experience in there. Right. Yeah. So you and gotta, we do that. We, we do that. You know, it's, it's easy to talk about it when somebody's son is dead in the next room over, right? Or when somebody, their, their wife has passed away in the living room and we're huddled here in, in, the, in the back bedroom. But it happens thousands of times every day with mm -hmm. people at the lunch, in the lunchroom, a buddy who's dating somebody, you know, your mom calls you just to check in. We're just throwing advice at people all day long. And it's, we're, we're hurting people with that type of interaction. It's very transactional and people just need us to shut our mouths and listen and be with them. Right. Rarely do they not have the answers that they're looking for already in them. And they need people just to, to, to be present. So does being present mean listening and just asking more questions if, if that's the case, but not spewing your experiences on, is it just being there listening? And then if it, comes to that asking questions about what they're going through yeah um we we this is a, probably a whole other pod, podcast trevor <laughs> we have a um, we have pathologized discomfort in our culture we are wholly uncomfortable being uncomfortable 
And so we don't know what to do when somebody is just double over crying and they're sitting right next to us and we just have our hands on their back. We, we don't have the tools or the practices um, or the knowledge to just sit there. Mm-hmm. And we don't understand how healing that is. And so we start thinking of things to say. And that's when we say stupid things and trite, you know, annoying things. That's when we hurt yeah. people. We just try to run our mouths, right? Yeah, definitely. So you got a new book come, uh, that's out called Redefining Anxiety. And anxiety is just a, it seems like a hot topic you know, right. across the U.S., especially in in my age with technology and things like this, uh, and I know in your book you define what it is, uh, and you also define was what it is not. Right. So, for people that are wondering if they're going through anxiety, what exactly is it? All anxiety is is an alarm system. It's it's an awesome. Um, operating system that we have. And again, I hate using computer metaphors, talking about people or machine metaphors, but um, it's the one that works the best. It's just an alarm that lets us know that we are unsafe in an unsafe situation, that we are disconnected from other people, or that we have an uncertain future that we don't have control of. And most of us found out during the pandemic, we don't control much of nothing, right? We thought (laughs) we did. We got the right degrees. We got the right jobs. We had the right girlfriends and boyfriends. But then a little virus that we can't see just shut down everything, right? We, we lost the illusion of control. Um, and we also recognized how utterly and desperately lonely we all are. And we have outsourced almost overnight relationships and connection to zeros and ones, right? To text messaging and emails and at the very weirdest phone calls, right? And we have started connecting with Netflix. We started connecting with... Um, art in a different way. So there's not a group of a collective group of people in a room looking at, at paintings or a collective group of people in a room listening to music or comedy. We are now doing it on our own and we've just isolated ourselves. And so our mm. natural inborn alarm system is just ringing off the hook right now. And it should be, right? We are lonely. We have an uncertain future. We've got an uncertain present, right? The economics of what's going on is just catastrophic and we haven't even felt it yet, I don't think. And so it's messy, messy, messy. And um, most people will ascribe anxiety to a brain disorder. I'm broken. I've, it's just genetic. My mom had it, so I have it. And all of that is just nonsense. It is a anxiety on the whole is a good thing. If you let it ring off the hook, like my idiot self did, right? I worked 24 seven, 365. I was always on call. I was working on a doctor that had a new kid. Um, I had a, I owed a lot of money. I owed six figures worth of debt because I was super fancy, just living the dream. And my alarm <laughs> rang so long that it does begin to malfunction. It begins to ring at random weird things, right? Mm. And I had to take a, a season and just stop for a minute and recalibrate myself. But um, on the whole, anxiety is a good thing. And when your alarms go off, it's a good thing. Here's the analogy I use. We treat anxiety like this. If our house was on fire, and me and a counselor were up on a ladder in my kitchen trying to figure out how to duct tape pillows around the fire alarm, right? That's not the problem. The problem is the house is burning down, right? <laughs> right. And so the way to get well, the way to get healthy, the way to be at peace, to shut the alarms off is to put the fire out, right? Right, right. So what are some uh, some ways that you saw anxiety affect your relationships? When, when you were really anxious, what were some things that you noticed in yourself that was unusual? Um, I became a tuning fork 
And the demon, uh, and what I mean by that is I, I could never let any place be without energy. I could mm-hmm. never let any place just be. And so if there was a group of people talking about a subject, I would jump in and be like, oh, yeah, well, and I would add the next conspiracy theory or the next <laughs> way this could go wrong or the next, right? Because yeah. I was so amped up, like, hey, we are saving money for this particular event. We're going to do this thing. And then I would hop in with, well, you know that the currency is just going to, you know, and Bitcoin's going to, that kind of stuff, right? Sure. And what anxiety does, once that alarm sets off, one of the byproducts of it is it quickly divides the world up into us's and them's. Mm. It's a brain mechanism, right? So imagine you 10,000 years ago, you open your eyes, you're on the savannah, you look around and there is nobody, right? You're alone. Your brain knows you're probably going to die. You're going to get eaten by something. And so quickly you start scanning the world for who's on my team and who's not, right? And if you look at the polarized world we're in right now, that's a direct result of people who are just spun out and anxious. And they just said, you're not on my team, so we hate you and we're going to do everything we can to burn you down because it makes me feel safe, right? And so in my life, I was dividing the world up into us's and them's in my friends, even the, my closest hmm. friends that I love dearly were like, dude, bro, back down. So when you start to hear your friends say like, cool, man, or all right, dude, <laughs> or chill out, or I don't think that's right. Then that's when I knew, man, I'm really starting to fry the people around me that I love mm. the most, right? Sure. And then all of a sudden, my wife starts creating an alt universe where crazy people don't live because I was bringing that to her and my brand new and my new, you know, one to two year old son. And then people at work start thinking, well, let's don't have him in that meeting. Right. Cause he gets mm. a little fired up when we talk about this. And then I realize they're not having me in that meeting. And so I spin out faster. Right. And so then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy and it spins faster and faster and faster. And pretty soon you're just a wreck or I was a wreck. Yeah. So what are a couple practical ways <clears throat> and important ways where when people realize they are having symptoms like you just mentioned, where they want to be, you know, the tuning fork, they want to bring energy or they want to, you know, almost uh, bring top talking points and, and fire people up a little bit, which I would say firing people up is a, is a good thing. But when you're bringing that to the table and that's, that's what you're focused on bringing to relationships instead of just, just being with people. Um, what are some practical and, and, and important steps uh, people can take when they're feeling anxious? Well, um, I'll, get to, I'll, I'll get there. I'll back out of, uh, I want to address one thing you just mentioned because sure. it's been a, a, a mind shift for me the last okay. couple of years. Um, I was a high school athlete. I was a college athlete for a brief time. I responded to volume. When my coach got in my face and was yelling at me and saying, Deloney, you and fill in the blank, right? Sure. I responded to that. <laughs> sure. Same. And what I've come to realize is I only responded to that because I had a relationship with that coach and I trusted mm. him that he cared about me and wanted me to be successful because he was only successful as I, if I was successful and because he saw something in me that I didn't see in myself because I was a kid. Outside of a deep relationship like that, yelling and trying to convince other people of your position only causes their internal alarm systems to double down. It makes them more fearful. And the one thing we cannot do when we are scared is learn new information. And so I actually think we're in a season where we don't need any more energy in any more rooms. We actually need people. Here's a goal of mine. And I got this from a mentor years ago. 
I want people to be a little more peaceful after they leave an interaction with me than before they came to me. And that's a goal. Not, I want them to know some more things. I want them to be a little more amped up because snap into a Slim Jim, <laughs> the world, you know, Jocko, yeah. There's that. <laughs> I want people to be a little more peaceful because as they become more peaceful, as their heart rate goes down and their cortisol and their adrenaline starts pumping, then their frontal lobe comes back online. Mm. Then they can begin to absorb new information. And you can only get information through relationship, almost exclusively. And so going back to your original question, which is what are some things? If the thought comes into your mind, and it's a simple sentence, if they would just dot, 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 if they being anyone would just dot, 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 that's when you know you're struggling with anxiety or you're hmm. starting to head into a, a depressive universe okay because the world is simply too complex for very many a plus b transactions anymore and when anytime you start identifying these you're starting to identify others your brain is cutting the world up into us's and thems and so that's when you know you've got some challenges so some very simple things that worked in my life is to just stop and acknowledge what the alarms are trying to tell you right in my world i took sleep meds for years and they, I wasn't sleeping. I was, they call them hypnotics, right? I was unconscious, but I wasn't asleep. <laughs> so there, I had some basic brain chemistry issues. My brain was overcompensating. Hmm. I also had begun to isolate myself because when you're anxious, you, everyone around you thinks you're nuts and you think they're nuts and, 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 and. So I started shutting my mouth and reconnecting with people again. And then as I started reconnecting with people again, and I started sleeping again and i started eating right again then suddenly those mm. alarm systems quit ringing so loud and then i can go see a doctor that i needed to see or i can go see a counselor that i needed to see and i needed to learn some new skills just not being anxious doesn't make you well it makes you hollow so you've got to fill that gap up with how do i actually talk to people how do i actually practice empathy how do i actually show up how do i actually balance working i got a jocko book on my nightstand right now i believe big time and discipline and working sure. your butt off like crazy and balancing that with a new skill i'm learning which is how to be graceful with myself when i show up and somebody brings me an awesome fancy pants nashvillian donut on my desk in the morning and i just crush the whole thing right <laughs> that mean i'm a loser and a failure and i suck and i should no that means yeah. i need to be graceful with myself it's not going to happen again this month and then i'm going to head off and go be disciplined again right so it's a it's finding that balance yeah, that's a tricky balance too, because <clears throat> like you said, I, I'm a fan of Jocko Willink. I'm a fan of like Cameron Haynes and sometimes even David Goggins in there. I'm a fan yeah, of their mentality. Um, and I have a buddy who who will just send, you know, videos of those guys back and forth and we're like, oh, how cool is this? And so you mentioned you're a fan of Jocko, but finding that balance, where is that balance, do you think? You know, what do you take from guys like Jocko and 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 other people? And where do you kind of draw the line and think, all right, I got to be graceful with myself. So I am, am fortunate to, um, I'm going to do this very carefully, to work with, um, <laughs> let me say, law enforcement, military personnel offline. Okay. Sure. And so I get to the, the privilege and it's an honor to see the other side of the Jocko, Right. There's the crush it and do it and dominate it. And right. you know what? 
we've got millions of people who just go home and sit on the couch and turn on Netflix. Right. That is their day and their life. And they trade one screen at work for another big screen at home. And they sit next to their girlfriend or boyfriend or husband and wife. And they're both on an iPad watching a big screen and they are two inches apart and 2000 miles away from each other. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we're having the least amount of sex in recorded history during this season. Right. Mm. Um, Adults aren't sleeping together. It, it's just bananas what's happening. We're so disconnected yeah. from one another. So somebody like David Grogan, someone like Jocko comes in there and just rattles that cage and says, people, yeah. get out of your funk and go get it done, right? Right. And I get the honor and privilege to talk to those folks when they are crippled with anxiety. Right. Right. And when they are struggling with their marriages and when they are struggling with, I don't know how to tell somebody that their child just passed away. Will you help me mm. with that? Right. So I get to see there's a balance to that too. And so the magic for me is I've got to learn the skill of grace for myself. That's not a tool I had in my toolkit. I'm having to learn it without going too far and letting it be an excuse to not work out, to not do right. the things I, I need to do to make sure that I'm healthy. Right. Right. Yeah, that's so good. It sounds like <clears throat> isolation is a huge, uh, huge piece of anxiety. If you don't have good relationships and good connections around you that are that are healthy, um, that's a huge, huge piece of anxiety. Um, so, what are some keys would you say to developing key connections and key relationships that? that do help you and, and do make you better. And cause I bet there's a lot of relationships out there that people might think they're strong relationships, um, but they might just be empty at the end of the day. That's right. Uh, I think loneliness is the chief demon of our time. I think we have reached an apex of humanity where there is a lot of us and a lot of really smart people with access to a ton of information and a ton of food, a ton of things, <laughs> a ton of affluence, right? Right. Yet we have barren relationships. They're mm. gone. And we're watching ourselves spin out of control with all of our basic needs, but one met, right? We are never been safer. We've never been um, all of these different metrics that say we're going to be okay, but we've traded in relationships for all of this and it's killing mm. us, right? You may have heard the term diseases of despair. Um, I think, Last year before COVID, um, the JAMA article came out, the Journal of American Medical Association, for the third year in a row, the average American lifespan had gone down again. And really? these are addiction and organ disease failures, right? Like heart disease and liver disease. Um, they are suicides. We are either acutely or long tail, long-term suicides. We're just killing ourselves through loneliness. And we're just trying to addict, addict our way through that, right? Mm. Um, and so we're just in this weird season, this weird moment when all that really matters right now is that people get reconnected to one another. And as you mentioned, we have made our relationships so transactional. So many of our relationships aren't good for us. They are, what can you give to me and what can I give to you, right? And we've got an influencer culture. We've got a, how many likes do I have culture, right? And we communicate just via this. Right. So the cornerstones to a relationship that's going to keep your heart and your brain and your spirit healthy are, can I tell somebody the absolute truth about what's in my head, my thoughts? Can I tell the absolute truth 
about the things that I've done, my actions. And then the big kicker is, can I be truthful about the people who have hurt me? Can I talk mm -hmm. openly with this person about my traumas, right? And if you can meet all those three things in a judgment-free area, not an accountability-free area, but a judgment-free area, and those are two wildly separate things that get conflated a lot. But if you have somebody you can tell your thoughts to, tell your actions to, and tell the worst things that have happened to you, now you're talking about a place where you feel safe. Your brain shuts itself down. It turns the alarms mm -hmm. off. We're okay here, right? Because this person's going to be okay. Wow. Yeah, that's so good. And I'm, <clears throat> I'm thinking in my head. How know, many of those people do you have? Right? How many of those people do you have? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because I. Very, very few. Yeah. And is it, so is it supposed to be few? Is, are you supposed to have just a few of those deep, deep connections? Yeah, I, I think once you get over four or five or six, it gets pretty challenging. Yeah, you kind of get spread thin on on who you're supposed to be telling all this stuff to, right? Because you need to be that person for them too, right? right. You need to be somebody who can hear somebody's deepest thoughts and their deepest action and their deepest hurts and just sit there with them, right? Mm. And when then when they invite you in, like, what should I do about this? Then and only then do you provide your insight and your your buddy knowledge, right? You're right. just talking crap. <laughs> like, right. I don't know, man. I think you should break up with that, that kind of stuff, man. We, <laughs> we all need those people in our life, right? Right. So what do you recommend, Dr. D, for people who are in maybe maybe not even toxic relationships? But let's just say for this uh, you know, instance, a toxic relationship right now, what's your recommendation to, to maybe not break it off completely and, and sever those ties? But uh, what do you recommend for people who are in those uh, relationships right now and are looking for key ones I, for toxic relationships uh, end them today yeah like just be done with them right they are taking sure. more from you than you have to give right they're stealing minutes from you they're stealing brain equity from you they're stealing your soul from you so mm. yeah if somebody's hurting you affirmatively take it i mean end it right be done with sure. the person um uh, our good friend here dr henry cloud wrote the the manual and it's called boundaries that's it's just a, it's a legendary book for a reason but we respond to the clicks and to the dings and to the emails so so much that we have given over our autonomy to other people hmm. right um just as early as 20 years ago when somebody would write a letter it would have to get here for a while and then <laughs> i would be at work when it showed up at my house and i would get home and i'd see it sitting there and I'd be like oh, i need to read that letter that's gonna be great and then I'd create a moment when I would open this letter up, right? And now right. my phone is just ding, 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 all day long. And we've got to reclaim some of those boundaries, meaning I don't have to respond to everybody right away. Mm -hmm. It makes me feel good, and, but I'm, I'm not going to be fully present with that person. I'm not going to be fully present where I'm at. I'm going to set up some time to respond to these folks who are my friends, who deserve and um, are worth a full response, right? And I'm going to be intentional about calling people. So I've got a rule. I got to call somebody every day on my drive home. I got to call a person, like a real human being that I got to talk to. A real one? My, a real human. That's right. <laughs> and not texting that's on the phone, right? And it's yeah, not right, as good right. as in person, but it's sometimes just the best we've got right now with this, the COVID and all the stuff. And then my wife is really taught me a lot about hospitality and what it looks like to be a person of service by opening up to your house. And so we've had people all through COVID come in and stay with us whose marriages are messed up, who just need, want dinner, who are our friends and are just coming over to hang out. Yeah. And that's been a season of blessing for us and for them. 
That's incredible. I but the word the, the main word there is you got to be hyper intentional. Right. Right. There's yeah. You got to be too much other opportunity to get distracted. Yeah. 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 Everything's pulling away at your attention. And I liked what you said about you know keying in on the people that are closest to you because all these rings, all these birthday notifications on Facebook of people you don't you maybe haven't talked to in 10, 15 years, you know, for forever. And yeah. you can't let that pull you away from the people who are right in front of you. I it's I not listen. real. Turn turn them off. Turn yeah. turn those off, by the way. Turn them off. D- turn yeah. off all notifications. If you don't remember a person's birthday, it wasn't that important to you. It just <laughs> right. wasn't. Right. Right. It right. wasn't. I, I can tell you nobody's birthday who's in my wedding. None. Nope. One. I know one dude's. My friend Ryan, October 14th. I don't know why that birthday is stuck <laughs> in my head, but it just is. Right. And I don't know anybody else's. Yeah. And so I either have to do the hard work of learning them all. Or I have to just let that one roll off. You right. know what I mean? I just right. let it roll. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I love what you said because I was listening to a, uh, a message from uh, my church just the other day. And uh, he the pastor was talking about how he was just jotting down who at my funeral is going to cry when I'm gone. And, and that's what he focused on. He said, whoever I jotted down and said, this person is going to cry at my funeral. That's who I'm going to spend time with. That's who I'm going to focus on. And I think you nail on the head, John, there are so many things that, that pull away our distraction from or our attention rather <clears throat> from the things right in front of us, the people that we care most about. And, uh, and those are the, those are the deep relationships that we're going to build. Right. That's, I mean, that's what you got, right? You only right. have a few opportunities throughout your life to have a 20 or 30 or 40 year friendship, right? There's only right. a few of those. Right. Um, Cause that, the, you meet new people all the time and you just don't have that time equity with them. Right. So you mentioned this earlier, we're, we're so divided as a country and I, I'm sure anxiety is a, is a center point of that. You know, we're dividing the world into us and thems. What are you doing right now to, to build unity instead of divide when, when you're just, whether it's interacting with people or whether it's the deep relationships you have? I think um, the first thing starts, I've got to look in the mirror. Right. And ask myself, what am I contributing to this? Or as you mentioned, what am I doing to help? Yeah. And here's the data that I know. Number one, most people, most of the time are not bad people. They're just not. I've been in the ugliest, messiest moments. Right. Um, They're not. Most people are doing the best they can with the tools they've got. And Mm -hmm. most of us don't have very many good tools. And so that allow just that right there allows me to enter a space where I'm not angry at people for how they're responding. I'm not pissed off at them. I'm not walking around trying to lecture people. I'm now in a situation where I want to bring calm and peace to hurting people. Right. Right. And that's number one. Number two, I got to understand when people are scared or hurting or frightened or frustrated, they can't hear any new information. They can't learn anything new. They can't adapt and acquire any new skills. They can just run or fight me or just stay frozen. Right. And you've heard that fight, fight or flight or freeze. Right. Right. That's all you can do. And so if I want to make any impact in the world, number one, I got to bring the temperature down in any and every room I'm in. I have to bring the temperature down in every conversation I'm engaged in. Hmm. Number two, I don't know everything. And I've got to put myself around people who think differently than me and look differently than me and have different life experiences than me so that I can learn new things. I've had a, um, a, a singular set of experiences. It's just mine. 
and everyone else has had a different one. And so mm. it's just dishonest intellectually to walk into a room and be like, this is what the deal is because I don't know what your deal is and her <laughs> deal is and his deal is right. Sure. And so it, again, if you're one master word here is humility, just shut up and bring peace into a room. And then the second thing, or the third thing is as a teacher, we have to, the great wisdom thinkers throughout history and the great scientists throughout history understand tension. I think it's mostly this and it's also this at the same time, right? I am a really healthy guy and I can murder a bowl of gummy candies, <laughs> right? Those are the same thing and they hold intention. And if one person sees me one day eating gummy candies, then their vision of me is cast in a certain way. And right. if somebody goes on a hunting trip with me and they see me fasting through the whole hunt and me eating really clean, that's going to paint a picture of them. And so the goal for me is to paint an honest intellectual picture of what a well life looks like, what a political mess looks like, right? right. Um, what actually navigating some of these things. And that's different than our politicians right now who are going at each other, trying to win engagements. Everybody loses when we play like that, right? Mm. Um, how do we actually get new information and then implement it in our daily lives? Yeah, that's so good. My wife saw me the other day just absolutely dummy a, uh, all of our Christmas cookies. So you, you, boy. you down in those gummy worms makes me feel <laughs> a little bit better. Uh, so we chatted a little bit about technology, Dr. D. What is your relationship with your phone today? How do you treat technology? Um, uh, I have a hate, 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 hate slash love relationship with it, right? Okay. Um, most people aren't recognizing, and I didn't recognize it until I talked to some of my um, biology friends and my, my uh, medical researcher friends. What's been able to be accomplished, if this um, uh, operation, what is it, uh, warp speed, the way they were able to develop these vaccinations, um, this will be a more impressive feat than putting somebody on the moon if they work. And that has only been made possible because people can share data now. They can run these computational, um, these computations that are billions and trillions per second, right? They can do things right now with this technology that has never been able to happen. I get in my computer once a week, every article on earth written that week on anxiety, on depression, on eating disorders, right? It just gets funneled into my um, inbox all in one neat little arrangement there. And so I, I live by this technology, right? Right. And I have to be cognizant that there is an attention economy. There is a group of companies, a group of neuroscientists, a group of neuromarketers whose whole job is to make my amygdala never stop thinking it's in danger, never stop thinking that I need something so that I will stay engaged in these platforms. Hmm. And I didn't have social media when I took this job. I had never logged into Instagram. I still don't know what Twitter super is. And <laughs> I was on Facebook for a while until my grandpa um, tried to friend me. And I was like, dude, no. And then I sat in a court case. I sat in a court case where they pulled down a screen and they were reading somebody's you know, private Facebook messages. And I was like, you know what, guys, I'm out. <laughs> right? I'm so, out of here. And that was years ago. And so all this is new. And I tell you what, Trevor, within the first two months, I was checking Instagram. I was obsessed with it, man. And yeah. it just, I, it was, it was like crack. And so yeah. um, now I, I've got it on a separate phone. So I've got a work phone and I'm blessed in that way, but I've got 
Instagram on one phone. So I literally have to, and it stays in airplane mode. I have to pick up that phone, turn the internet on it, and then reset it. Um, so I've set up some barriers for myself because I know I can't control. They're smarter than me. They've, they've hacked my brain. They just are. Right. Um, and then when it comes to my regular <clears throat> phone, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty judicious with it. Try to be pretty smart with it. Yeah. Yeah. So when you say you try to be pretty smart with it, are you uh, setting it in other rooms throughout the day just so you're, you're not even like, let's say you come home to your family, Dr. D and uh, what's your, what are you doing with your phone? Are you? Yeah. Most days, most of the time I'll go put it in another room. And so I can be present with my family while we're sitting there. Sure. So uh, I don't know how old your kids are or anything like that, but. 10 and almost five, 10 and four. 10 and four. Almost five. Yeah. So what is your strategy going to be for your kids in a world where like you just said it, this technology is so addicting. And uh, I know it's, it's different for guys and girls and how it affects them. I'm sure uh, with comparison games and and things like that. Um. Yeah, what what are you gonna um, put in place for your kids? What what things are you gonna do? Um, so I'll answer that with this question, with this little sidebar. Sure. My granddad, his parents, it was a common practice back then. He's a World War II vet. He was a stud. He's a great human being. Um, one of the, the kindest men who's ever walked this earth. But his parents were of a generation when. This awesome thing came out called packaged cigarettes. And they would give them to kids just to calm everybody down. And if you go to John Hopkins Hospital, they still have ashtrays in the surgery ward, in the maternity ward, excuse me, because menthol cigarettes were good for the baby. That was the common wisdom, right? And so when um, folks were going off to war, they would give them, you know, the old saying was they'd give them a gun and a carton of smokes, take your friends with you, right? Mm. And so then we all realized, oh, you shouldn't do that, no, right? Don't give children smokes, right? right. Don't <laughs> give teenagers cigarettes right. and tell them to go hang out with their friends. Don't give pregnant women. Ci-. So yeah, um, I believe that this, the technology came out and was so shiny and so beautiful and so pacifying so fast that um and it came under the guise of connection the same as cigarettes came as the guy under the guise of it just calms you down it makes you feel better right so does uh social media it really does it can calm you down it can just Mm -hmm. as you're thumbing through um i think the data is going to point to a place where um it's going to be unethical it's going to end up being um evil to put those in the hands of kids and that's how I read the data. We just can't ignore what's happening with um, our young girls and our young yeah. boys. As you mentioned, that depression, anxiety manifests itself differently. And so it looks more demonstrative in girls. You can see it more. But guys, it plays out in different ways um, and in sometimes more devastating ways. The reality is um, that stuff is just crushing my kids. And so in my house, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a no-go, right? They know they don't touch phones they don't mess with phones we have an old phone that they can listen to books on um like audio books but it doesn't work right it's not connected to anything sure and um but no we are i'm just militant and for the foreseeable future uh, my son already i think is one of just a couple of people in his class that doesn't already have phones um and it's just i i can't wrap my head around it um 
other than this, there was an article out of, out of the UK where they were talking about one of the, the leading groups of people that receive iPads was two and three-year-olds. And a parent said, I, I know it's not right. I know this, but I just don't want to be the only parent. Mm. And a friend of mine named S.J. Dahlstrom, he's a children's author out of Texas, and him and I are close buddies. And that just became a parenting slogan for us, which was, I'm going to be the only one. I'm going to be the only one that makes my kids go play outside. I'm going to be the only one that I got to put down my electronics and you're not going to have any. So what are we going to do now? We have to play soccer. We're going to have to throw a baseball. We're going to have to go for a hike in the woods or go fishing. I'm going to have to do things with my kid, right? I'm going to be the only one. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm going to build something and my son's going to come watch me. My daughter's going to come watch me. She's going to learn how to use a saw. So I'm going to have to parent differently. And it's exhausting, Trevor. It's frustrating. It is super annoying. And it's the right thing to do. So that was a long-winded answer to no technology for kids, period, end of story. I'll go to task with anybody who says anything differently, but that's that's the way it is. No, it's good to hear that because, you know, I look around, if I hang out with my nieces and nephews who are, you know, even two, you can see the infatuation to a phone. Like they've, right. they've seen it already. And uh, so I appreciate that stance. And it actually reminds me of, you know, something Dave always says, live like no one else. So later you can live like no one else. Yep. What you're saying is I'm going to be the only one now so that I can look back and be the only dad with those memories later down the road. Um, well, not only that, I, I want my son and my daughter's neurological biology to be sound. Yeah. Right? yeah. And here's the other reality. By the time they are 18, 19, 20, the technology is going to look so differently. It's going to look so different. Right? Yeah. We're just speaking stuff now, and the wall is answering us, and little boxes are giving us math. I mean, it's so intuitive, and it's learning. It's going to be so different. Yeah. So I'd rather them have the, the neurological architecture of how to play an instrument and how to be bored and how to be outside and how to be uncomfortable and how to be in relationship and how to honor the adults in the room and how to hmm. – does that make sense? And how to that be good sense. friends. How yeah. to have imagination. Um, I want that architecture in their neurology before um, they start landing into the world where all these articles just get downloaded into their inbox, right? Right, right. right. All right, Dr. D, I got a few uh, just kind of lifestyle questions to end it here. Uh, you, uh, you have a morning routine, and if so, what does it look like? Yes, I've got a, <laughs> I've got a pathological morning routine. I just did a ask me anything on my radio show about here's here's the morning routine start to finish. So okay. I'll give it to you in short order. You ready? Sure, I'm ready. Um, I wake up between 5 and 5.30, depending on the day, sometimes 4.30, sometimes um, 6-ish, but almost always between 5 and 5.30. And I go straight from there and have so, – it's going to sound crazy, right? I hope your listeners don't think I'm insane. Um <laughs> I have a medium-sized glass of salt water and the salt's fancy pants, Kalima salt. It's not just table salt. Don't do that. That'll kill you. Um, and then I have a cup of coffee and I go down to my basement and do my gratitude journal and my meditation time and my prayer time and um, scripture time, that, that, like the, the wisdom literature and scripture mm-hmm. for me and the meditation. And I go from there to, I've, I've been collecting old, every time a CrossFit gym shuts down in my neighborhood, i go buy a couple of kettlebells or some plates or something. So I've built a a pretty cool home gym. And so I go there and hit that pretty hard and, um, or I'll head off for a walk just in the cold or in the heat. And then I'll do my cold tub. I've got a $99 cold tub that I bought from tractor supply store. 
and it sits outside <laughs> in the winter. I had to chip ice off. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, you yeah, it freezes over. It's cold, man. Um, and then in the summer, I take two five-gallon <laughs> buckets and I fill them up with water and I put them in a deep freezer. And then the next morning, I get them out and drop them in there, and it turns to ice too. And so it's super lo-fi and cheap. I can't afford the big fancy ones. Yeah. And um, and then I've got a teeter that I hang upside down for three to five minutes every morning. And okay. then I head upstairs and all the electronics are off and I'm just present with my kids. And um, I either have my morning shake or sometimes I'll make a breakfast or I'll, I'm fasting or whatnot. And then I'll, we'll either play or wrestle or we'll all be quiet, but some sort of, we're all kind of together. Sure. Lots and lots of skin to skin contact, um, hugging and touching people's faces and hands and making sure that everybody not only hears me say I love you, but experiences that mm. through my presence. And I've got a little note card and I make sure the day is mapped out and I look at my calendar, um, what's coming that day. And then I head out to work. Wow. Get it. Man, that's a crazy morning routine. That's the most interesting one I've heard yet. And so it takes uh, 45 minutes okay. on a quick day to an hour and a half if I'm slow playing it. Just okay. depends on what the day looks like. Sure. I, uh, I was actually just looking up <coughs> cold tubs. I live here in Minnesota, uh, so it's it's freezing. Ninety nine bucks at Tractor Supply. Okay. Get a tin, like one of those. It's a feeding trough. Yeah. And just fill the water, stick it outside, and it is a trim. <laughs> so do you? How long do you usually sit in that? It depends. Yeah. Um, on the on the average day, three to five minutes. Okay. And I've just been doing it for years now, and so now it's 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 you don't get that breath reflex anymore. Um, occasionally you will, it can get real cold, <laughs> you yeah. will, but, uh, Minnesota, yeah, you'll get it for a minute, but, oh yeah. um, and you may want to start with cold showers for a season before you move on. That's what um, I'm doing right now. Yeah. And that takes my breath away right now. I, I turn it to cold. I start it hot, turn it to cold. And then I like, can't breathe for like 10 seconds. I just yeah. I feel like I'm freaking out. No, it's good. Yeah. So I would start for 30 to 60 seconds in a cold tub for okay. a couple of weeks. Right. And just, and it, it's going to be a psychological um exercise more than anything and pretty soon your body will begin to just just slow itself down and, and you'll feel it as it, it's almost like an elevator as it hits down mm. it's a really rewarding experience yeah i gotta get into that all right i you said you uh have a gratitude journal what are you yes. usually uh writing you know what you're grateful for is it is it things is it whatever you're thinking about that morning is it it's five sentences that start with the the, the words i am grateful for it, and again, it's a $9 journal I got from Walmart and, sure. um, I've had some sophisticated ones and I've spent a bunch of money on expensive ones. This one just works. Um, it's got a bunch of dots and I think there's a special name for the dot journal or whatever. I'm not fancy enough for that, but, um, yeah, it, it just has my notes in it from the day. I'll, I'll carry it around with me in case I have a fun idea or something that's bothering me. Um, but then I started every day with, I am grateful for, and it can be my wife, my kids, my spiritual journey. It can be some friends, something that happened yesterday, my job, the fact that I'm sitting in a warm, heated home in the middle of a winter, right? It could be yeah. any number of things. That's awesome. So uh, final question for you. What is one piece of advice you would leave to people who are in their 20s and 30s right now? Oh, man. You know, I was just thinking about this. Um, one of the core... Um, one of the core character traits people over the last couple of hundred years have identified is I work really hard. I'll outwork you. 
right? And we're entering into a season where the next 10 to 20 years, 10 to 20 to 30 years, we're going to have more and more things automated, right? We hear that all the time. Assuming there's not some big catastrophic um, economic issue or something like that, right? Right. And so this idea that I just work really hard is going to be hard to compete with a machine that's working 24-7, 365 with no breaks, right? Mm, right. And so one of the things that I would lean into a 20-year-old, those somebody in their 20s, someone in their 30s, that there were seasons when I was doing this accidentally, and I didn't realize I was doing it. But I spent years, 20 years, really learning things. How do you do them? How do you do them with excellence? Not only how do you do the skill, but do you know why this works? And do you know mm-hmm. how this actually helps? And do you know how this piece plugs into that piece? And information has been divided up because of the way academic institutions have taught and researched things. You had a biology department and you had a nursing department and you had a physiology department and a mental health department and a surgery department. Now we're realizing there's no such thing as mental health and physical health and spiritual health. It's just health. It all works together, right? And you can't have one without the other. And you can't have relational health without, you know, physical health, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And so as those things begin to, they are crashing into each other um, at the, at rates never before seen in the history of time. It's a beautiful, messy, scary moment. I would teach, I would ask people to a work real hard, keep being excellent at what they're doing, but spend this season learning deeply. Mm-hmm. Don't spend your season just trying to get the next job or to become associate associate director. Cause I've been assistant director for seven months and I've proven myself and I need to make right. Um, the more you try to position hop and job hop, the more time you waste um, when you could be learning things. When I think back, hmm. dude, I had probably a five to 10 year period where I applied for so many jobs. I was always looking for the next job to the next thing. Cause I was chasing a title and a dollar amount. Mm-hmm. And if I could have those hours back, and dedicate that to reading or sitting with mental health professionals who were studs or taking an extra graduate school class, dude, that would be such a better investment of my time. Right. Mm. And if you take care of the things that you learn deeply, if you are excellent and work really hard, the job stuff takes care of itself, man. It just does. People need you on your team. When I was a little kid, my dad used to always tell me, um, if you can't field and you don't throw very well, but you can hit, they will find a place on the baseball field for you. Just a period. They'll find a place. Right. For you, right? Yeah. They even created a position called DH. DH. Yeah. They, like, I just need you. Let's just all agree yeah. <laughs> that we all have that one guy. Right. Right. <laughs> and so people in your twenties and thirties don't chase titles. Don't chase. Hmm. Oh, can I rant about something real quick? Please Here's do. the other thing. Please do. Stop following your passions for God's sakes. Here's the thing about this. We've all been told, follow our passions. And along the way, passions got mushed into how I feel, right? I love this thing, but it's hard. Or I love this thing, and I love uh, I, I like playing guitar. I've been playing guitar for 30 years. I'm trying to learn this solo, and it's really hard, right? Or I auditioned for these bands, and they didn't want me in their band. And that hurt. It made me sad. So then suddenly I'm not, quote, unquote, passionate about this instrument anymore right i'm not passionate about the arts i'm gonna go do something else that's a stupid way to live trevor Mm -hmm. when your feelings are are directing you because feelings are important and we have to acknowledge them but they lie to us every day right right so here's the 
algorithm for passion. You are passionate about the things you are good at, and you are good at the things you practice. And for most of us, we practice the things that we were made to do. Whether our parents forced us to take to learn an instrument or to exercise, or we gave that right over to a coach who made us do extra sets and run extra wind sprints and do that drill again and again and again, or a boss that makes us show up on time and be ready to go at this meeting, right? Then suddenly you get passionate about presenting because mm-hmm. I got good at it and I got good at it because I practiced it and I practiced it because my boss kept making me do this stupid presentation every Friday that I hated preparing for, right? right. And so I want to reverse engineer passion mm-hmm. and start practicing things and getting good at things, start learning things. And then you're going to find passions all over the place. Man. Mm. You're going to love things as opposed to just having your feelings wag the dog. Right. Right. Man, that's there rock solid. I love it. Thank you for that. I hope it's rock solid. It may not be real at all, but hey. it sounds good to me. <laughs> That'll work for me too. All right. Uh, Dr. D, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I just want to, um, ask you where can people find you and where can they find your your new book redefining anxiety awesome so uh you can find me at johndeloney.com or you can follow me on the interwebs at john deloney on the internets whatever those the, the <laughs> things are the platforms um and i do love the instagram now I have, I have fun with that one that one's a good time yeah yeah and um you can, you can find my book. You can find it at johndeloney.com or daveramsey.com, or you can find it on Amazon as well. And it hit the bestseller list, and so we're excited. It's taken off in a way that none of us expected, it, Trevor. <laughs> um, but it's doing well, and it's only 10 bucks. It's a, it's a very thin book that you can read in a day um, that gets to the heart of struggling with anxiety and what you can do about it. Thanks for listening to this episode. I really hope that this episode brought you value. If you know any friends or family members who struggle with anxiety, please share this episode with them. I think that they'll get a lot of good stuff out of it. And tell them to check out Dr. John Deloney's new book called Redefining Anxiety. If you enjoyed this podcast, go give it a rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you.